Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 37, Billy Gate. Billy Carter wasn't one to sweat the small stuff. As Jimmy Carter's younger brother, he was no stranger to national attention and public scrutiny. In fact, Billy had long used his relationship with his brother to his advantage. He'd been content to ride Jimmy's coattails for years. Being next of kin to the president let him establish himself as a celebrity in his own right. Billy delighted in his role as Jimmy's loud, zany, and oftentimes drunk younger brother. All from the safety of his own pulpit, the gas station he owned in their hometown of Plains, Georgia, often with a beer or two in hand. Jimmy, conversely, had endeared himself to the American people as an honest and sincere president. But his re-election campaign stalled in 1980. His administration was plagued by issues at home and abroad. The international crises unfolding would be tough for any politician to weather, let alone one putting out fires started by his own family. Most of the Carter administration had long found Billy's eccentric behavior to be a liability. However, through the ups and downs of Jimmy's lengthy political career, his loyalty to Billy never wavered. But by 1980, the once attention-hungry Billy had all but disappeared from the limelight. People wondered whether he might be in failing health or worse. In the months leading up to the 1980 presidential election, though, it would become clear that Billy had been up to far more serious business. He'd been making some international trips, and not just vacations. We're talking about foreign deals so serious, they could ruin his brother's re-election. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. The Carter family had kept the same estate in Plains, Georgia since the early 1900s. It made sense, given that they were an entrepreneurial bunch and made their living off of the farmland they owned nearby. By the time Billy Carter was born in March of 1937, he was the fourth child in his family. His brother Jimmy was already in middle school, 12 years his senior. The Carter farm would serve as a safety blanket for Billy. Sure, he left Plains in 1955 to attend Emory University, but he didn't stay long enough to get his degree. He wandered from Emory to the Marine Corps, serving for four years before again losing interest. In his mid-twenties, he headed back to Georgia to work on the family farm. Despite their mother's claim that Billy was the smartest of her four kids, it seemed Jimmy was the son putting his head to work. While Billy hung around Plains, by the mid-1970s, Jimmy was deep into Georgia politics. With their oldest son as governor, the Carter family knew some level of local notoriety was inevitable. But they didn't know how rapidly such status could grow. In December 1974, Jimmy declared his candidacy for President of the United States. The announcement jolted the Carters from small-town celebrities into an intense national spotlight. All the attention was unsettling. The two Carter sisters shunned the limelight. Billy, though, took a much different approach. He welcomed it with open arms. It was a welcome distraction for Billy. He'd long anticipated that he'd be the one to run the family farm with Jimmy tied up in politics and all. So when the business was placed in a blind trust instead, he was caught off guard. Suddenly, Billy was unemployed. The timing was nearly kismet. The public had plenty of questions about the Carter family mystique, and Billy had time to kill. All he needed was a pulpit. Luckily, Billy owned some property. Two years earlier, in 1972, he'd purchased a gas station in Plains. Now, it would transform from a pit stop along Highway 280 into a destination for anyone interested in Jimmy Carter. Back in Georgia, tourists quickly caught on that all they needed to do was get Billy talking, and he'd probably divulge some fun stories. This became even more of an attraction when Jimmy was no longer Candidate Carter, but President Carter. In November of 1976, Jimmy defeated Republican incumbent Gerald Ford, and the following January, he became the 39th President of the United States. Naturally, the little humble gas station grew busy with people. They were less interested in pumping fuel than in chatting up the hard-drinking, endlessly quotable Billy. This all seemed innocent enough, until, to the dismay of the Carter administration, journalists figured out the same thing. 
Reporters had been trying to craft their own takes on the history of Jimmy Carter since he announced his candidacy. They couldn't dream of a better source than Billy. In contrast to Jimmy, the straight-laced, earnest Southern boy, Billy was the happy booze hound always willing to go on record. Billy, like his mother said, was smart. He wasn't about to let that kind of capital slip away. He may have been a professional redneck, as the Associated Press once coronated him, but he was an entrepreneur too. He'd take his love of Pabst Blue Ribbon and unrelenting Southern charm and bundle them into something he could sell. Billy Beer. In the late 1970s, when Falls City Brewing, a company based out of Kentucky, came calling with an offer, Billy answered without hesitation. Not that they'd admit it, but Falls City Brewing needed Billy. The small label had always struggled to compete with large-name beer brands. It thought that having the oft-drunk president's brother as its mascot could revitalize their brand in the best way possible. Billy was reportedly paid $50,000 to license his name and allowed to select the beer he liked the best. It worked. The creation of Billy Beer in 1977 launched him to stardom. The beer even became a collector's item. People on both sides of the political spectrum were flocking to their local grocery stores, hoping to get their hands on a 12-pack. Fall City Brewing was indeed correct in predicting Billy Beer would be a hit. What they didn't fully realize, though, was that they just hired a major liability. Billy was a loose cannon. He'd show up as promised to promote Billy Beer at company events and speaking engagements, only to drink too much and tell people that he still preferred the taste of Pabst. It wasn't a good look. Once the initial novelty of Billy Beer wore off, it was clear that customers had little incentive to keep buying. And as quickly as they'd risen out of the red, Falls City Brewing was back to struggling. Just one year after launching Billy Beer, the label went under. In hindsight, the president of the company reportedly tied its rise and fall to the rise and fall of Jimmy Carter's national favorability. This was clearly a PR spin. Anyone else would tell you that Billy Beer flopped due to its awful taste. But what Falls City Brewing hinted at was partially true. By late 1978, the American public wasn't as enamored with President Jimmy Carter as they'd been when they elected him in 1976. In the final two years of his term, Carter faced a slew of issues, both international and domestic. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Iran hostage crisis were simmering across the world while he tended to a slowing economy and a major gas crisis at home. As the tide turned on Jimmy, it was just a matter of time before Billy fell out of public favor as well. While Billy wasn't under the same scrutiny as Jimmy, his bizarre behavior had grown into a sore spot for the Carter administration. But Billy's beer antics were the least of its worries. There was a far more troublesome surprise on the horizon, and right before a hotly contested re-election campaign. Billy Gate was brewing, and this time, it wouldn't go under quietly. 
To fully understand the scope of what Billy was about to do, let's quickly recap the state of diplomatic relations between the United States and Libya at that point in time. In 1979, the U.S. placed an embargo on the sale of military equipment to Libya. This was reflective of the specific strain between the two countries. Muammar Gaddafi was leading Libya after overthrowing the previous government in 1969. Gaddafi was stridently critical of the United States, especially when it came to the U.S. involvement with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But despite publicly condemning Western influence, Gaddafi was still motivated to improve diplomatic relations with the U.S. in order to lift the military equipment embargo. The U.S. government was unwilling to budge, though. So, looking for alternatives, Libya decided to go directly to well-connected American citizens and businesses instead. In order to obtain the equipment it wanted, the country needed an influential person and one who wouldn't ask too many questions, especially if they had enough money thrown at them. Turns out, Billy Carter was just that person. Introductions began in July of 1978. Thomas Jordan, Billy's friend and bigwig real estate developer, brought the Libyan ambassador to Italy, Jabril Shalouf, down to the gas station in Plains, Georgia, for a brief visit. However innocuous the meeting appeared, it was a critical catalyst for what was to come next. Though it's unclear as to what Jordan's specific plan was, he'd previously worked with Libyan citizens on several successful real estate deals. Seeing his friends struggling, he hoped that they could arrange something similar that allowed Billy to take a cut. Jordan didn't have to work hard to sell Billy on the idea of a large payday. Billy needed the cash injection. Billy Beer had been discontinued earlier that year, which didn't help his money problems. Consequently, he drank more heavily to blur all the lines. All these issues strained his family. Billy had a wife and six children to answer to at home. But he had a way of getting lucky, or positioning himself in just the right place when lightning struck. And this time was no different. Jordan came through on his promise. Just two months after the initial gas station meeting, in September of 1978, Billy traveled to Libya for the first time. Coming up, Billy Carter touches down in Libya. Now, back to the story. By the fall of 1978, Billy Carter found himself cashing in on his fame, albeit in a very different way than he first had when his brother Jimmy was elected president in 1976. Billy's gas station variety show and custom beer line were of little interest to the American public, who had turned their attention back to more pressing matters like the stalling economy. So Billy went to Libya seeing what business he might drum up. By all accounts, he had no idea what to expect. And to the public eye, the trip was mostly uneventful. Billy toured schools and housing developments. He met with a handful of various Libyan officials. It seemed to be par for the course for a standard visit. However, behind the scenes was a completely different story. Libyan officials were prodding Billy for information. 
namely the order of Lockheed C-130 transport planes that had been halted due to the U.S. embargo. Libya had ordered eight of these aircraft, but the transaction was never fulfilled due to the political disagreements between the two countries' governments. It appeared that the Libyans were hoping Billy would be their key to getting the planes. However, a deeper dive into Billy's diplomatic past, or lack thereof, would have likely quashed this belief. Billy was outspoken, but his sphere of influence didn't hold sway within Jimmy's administration. The trip hadn't even finished, and Billy had already received multiple gifts, including cash. Before he left, there was talk of planning another trip to take place in the coming months. After Jordan and Billy returned to the United States, Jordan got to work. He requested $50,000 from the Libyans to cover the expenses they incurred during their September visit. It was a calculated move. $50,000 was far more than anything on the trip could have cost. Ambassador Jibril Shalouf balked at the request. He declined the reimbursement, offering instead to pay Jordan a fraction of what he'd asked for. Ultimately, the real estate developer accepted the U.S. equivalent of $3,000. Oddly, for all the fuss, Billy never saw a dime of the money. Plans for that meeting they'd all been eager to set back in September progressed nonetheless. In January of 1979, a delegation of Libyan citizens arrived in Georgia. This time, it'd be Billy playing the gracious host and he cranked the Southern charm to 11. The group toured multiple locations in Plains, including Billy's infamous gas station and the Carter family farm and facilities. A routine tour of the peanut farm may have seemed innocent, but would be brought into question later. Surely most of the family would have known if a group of visitors was traipsing around the farm, right? The optics of the entire situation posed a potential issue for Jimmy Carter's administration. Sure, nothing about the visit was glaringly illegal, and yet everyone knew the Libyan government was not friendly with the United States. It looked egregiously bad to have the president's own brother giving tours to Libyan officials in his own backyard. Naturally, the Justice Department had picked up on Billy's visits. In January of 1979, the DOJ sent him a letter requesting that he register as a foreign agent. Sidebar, in the United States, anyone representing a foreign government in the U.S. must register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, to disclose the nature of their actions and financial compensation. Despite the official warning for some unimaginable reason, Billy disregarded the letter and didn't register as a foreign agent. Perhaps he thought it didn't apply to him. Whatever the reason, he was emboldened to continue his discussions with the Libyans. But things grew more complicated. The next month, in February of 1979, Billy was hospitalized in Georgia due to his alcoholism. Allegedly, when Jimmy came to visit him, the two briefly discussed that Billy was considering another trip to Libya. According to the New York Times, the president told his brother that such a trip would be unwise because of the threat to Billy's health 
and the embarrassment it could cause to them both. Billy, despite his fragile state, was nonplussed. He remained interested in negotiating a deal that was mutually beneficial for both himself and the Libyans. One role on the table was for Billy to broker deals between Libyan oil companies and customers in the U.S. For his hard work, he'd receive commissions on each deal. But brokering international oil deals falls under the umbrella of Farah, which Billy had so deliberately not registered for. He shouldn't have been surprised then that shortly after, in March, the FBI contacted him. After Billy ignored the warning to register under Farah, the FBI decided to look into whether Billy's negotiations with the Libyans were legal. Billy brushed off their questions, replying that he hadn't been paid for his work and his previous trip to Libya was unrelated to any working matters. The FBI inquiry clearly didn't rattle Billy. Later that same month, he contacted an old friend, Jack McGregor, who was the head of a company called Cary Energy Organization. Billy called Jack up out of the blue with an odd request. He asked if Jack had any contacts that would be interested in purchasing oil from Libya. And as luck would have it, he did. Ever the gracious intermediary, Jack put him in contact with companies he believed might be interested. Billy used these contacts to broker a deal with a company based in Florida called Charter Crude. Through this deal, Billy secured himself a nice 55-cent commission on every barrel of Libyan oil sold to Charter Crude. With the closing of this deal, Billy was now an unregistered agent disregarding the terms of Farah and the brother of the President of the United States. Should the American public find out the details of his business abroad and how it related to an already beleaguered President Carter, it could be a damning revelation. Billy wasn't going to let his health slow him down either. After his release from the hospital, Billy again traveled to Libya, this time for the 10-year anniversary of Gaddafi's rise to power. He was photographed attending the military parade in Gaddafi's honor. This documentation, along with more pictures of Billy next to individuals who were considered to be terrorist operatives, raised grave concerns. Apparently, even President Carter only found out that Billy had gone to Libya through the press. Though the details of Billy's business deals with Libya were not yet public, the sheer fact that the president's own brother had traveled to Libya to celebrate with Gaddafi was perilous. More eyebrows were raised when Billy didn't come home immediately after the festivities. He stayed in Libya for nearly a month, negotiating oil contracts with potential clients. All this for a rather one-sided relationship. Though Billy was working on behalf of Libyan companies, if the Libyan government had intended to use Billy to help release its embargoed planes, well, that hadn't worked. In fact, international tensions were about to get worse. On November 4, 1979, protesters stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, and took 52 Americans hostage. 
the long-standing issues between Iran and the U.S. had come to a head, and other world leaders were anxiously waiting for the U.S. to make the next move. President Jimmy Carter wanted to resolve the crisis peacefully. Throughout the entire crisis, which lasted 444 days in total, Carter declined a course of forceful intervention. Republicans turned against him, calling the decision weak. They believed that by publicly vowing to end the hostage crisis peacefully, the Carter administration had exhausted any avenue of getting the U.S. citizens home unharmed. As the crisis dragged on, more people stepped in to comment on the situation. Even Jimmy's wife Rosalind suggested that his administration consult with Billy, since he had ongoing dealings with Libyan citizens. She thought perhaps his contacts could serve as some sort of mediator. After all, Libya and Iran had long been allies. Just admitting this option invited scrutiny. It wasn't hard for the average person to connect the dots. The Carter administration clearly knew that Billy had some ties to Libya. Whether they knew the extent didn't matter so much. It was the principle. They knew. Reflecting on the crisis years later, national security advisers would later say that in an effort to free the hostages safely, the Carter administration purposefully explored every single option, even the ones showing little promise. Realistically, the administration did not believe Billy held the type of influence that would end an international standoff. With that, most of Carter's staff moved on. But there was one national security advisor that found Billy's newfound connection to Libya too worrisome not to investigate further. Big Nev Brzezinski was a Polish-American diplomat who'd cut his teeth in the Johnson administration, where he'd served as a counselor to LBJ. Now a national security advisor to Carter. He was increasingly concerned with his younger brother's ongoing oil negotiations. When Brzezinski realized that Billy had attended Gaddafi's parade in 1979, he was spurred into action. Brzezinski had been in Washington long enough to know that if they didn't tackle the matter now, Carter wouldn't see a second term. So Brzezinski launched an investigation into Billy's dealings with Libya. But even as the one spearheading the probe, he was shocked to discover just how deeply Billy was in over his head. Brzezinski reportedly called Billy and privately lectured him on the potential repercussions his brother could face. Billy was notably silent as Brzezinski outlined the possible ramifications. When the advisor was done speaking his piece, though, Billy promptly told him to take a hike. And hung up the phone. Clearly, Billy wasn't interested in curtailing the behavior that was just starting to turn a profit. Around the same time, Billy received a two hundred and twenty thousand dollar payment from the Libyan embassy's bank account. Though this was a substantial payment, it wasn't the first to come from that sender. The very same account had sent a twenty thousand dollar check, which Billy deposited with haste just weeks after the Iranian hostage crisis began. Such massive payments wouldn't fly under the radar. In June 1980, the United States Justice Department 
formally announced that it was investigating the payments Billy received from Libya. Coming up, the DOJ probes Billy, and later, Jimmy Carter steps up to debate Ronald Reagan under the worst possible circumstances. Now, back to the story. The Department of Justice investigation into Billy Carter was a bullet heading directly to the heart of his brother's re-election campaign. In less than two months' time, the 1980 Democratic National Convention was set to take place in New York City, and there was a very real chance the party could oust Jimmy in favor of Ted Kennedy. While the inquiry gathered steam, there seemed to be no good way for the administration to spin Billy's dealings to the public. Even if the outcome of the investigation was in Jimmy's favor, the fact that there was an investigation at all was damaging enough. They decided, for the time being, to keep quiet. Over the summer, the panic at the DOJ spread all the way up to the Attorney General, Benjamin Civiletti. This time, he contacted the Carter administration himself. Billy needed to register as a foreign agent. Underscoring that Billy was not just delinquent, but purposefully avoiding FARA rules, Civiletti hoped dealing with Jimmy Carter's people directly would help move things along. Even the president's response was more of the same. Jimmy replied he didn't think Billy would opt to register simply because Billy did not believe that he was acting as a foreign agent. But clearly, the AG's intervention held sway. Shortly after, Jimmy appealed to Billy, brother to brother. The president had always been benevolent to Billy, despite the ups and downs of their relationship. It's imaginable that the rise and fall of Billy Beer was hard to watch. But throughout their relationship, Jimmy never criticized the way Billy chose to live his life. So on July 14, 1980, Billy took his brother's advice and registered as a foreign agent. He still didn't disclose the exact source of the Libyan money, though. Perhaps inadvertently, registering under Farah eventually soured the relationship between Billy and his Libyan contacts. The Libyans were aware that the U.S. government, knowing about the deals, wouldn't end well. On top of that, around the same time, the U.S. government began expelling Libyan diplomats. Earlier in April of 1980, Washington asked two diplomats suspected of sympathizing with Muammar Gaddafi to leave the U.S. That May, four more were expelled. This escalated hostilities, and an oil contract Billy had been working on for the better part of a year fell apart. Billy walked away from the deal with only a fraction of what he was promised. It seemed it was all for naught. Billy hadn't struck it rich, and now Jimmy was in the hottest water he'd ever been in politically. While the Justice Department continued their investigation into the matter, political opponents of the Carter administration were free to speculate and scrutinize. The air needed to be cleared and fast. On July 24, 1980, just 10 days after Billy registered under Farah, the democratically-led Senate announced it would open its own investigation into Billy Carter. A special subcommittee was tasked with gathering evidence and organizing a hearing. With little to do but wait, Republicans stirred the pot. 
The Republican Party had long delighted in accusing Jimmy of being weak on foreign policy, happy to cite the Iran hostage crisis as the most recent example of why he was unfit for re-election. Now, his own brother was working for a country that publicly opposed the United States. It didn't matter that the oil deals had fallen apart. The damage was done. The GOP took to fear-mongering about what the president knew. They hoped that all the speculation would finally tank Jimmy's credibility with the American public. Senators Dennis DeConcini and Orrin Hatch claimed that the payments to Billy from Libya were a broader plot by the Libyans to embarrass the already embattled Carter administration. They guffawed that Billy was simply an easy pawn. Though this was a common theory, it wasn't triggering the type of damning reaction the GOP had hoped for. So later that August, the Republicans accused President Carter of pleading with the Justice Department to go easy on Billy. The administration couldn't stay silent any longer. An accusation of this magnitude left unchecked would not only kill the re-election campaign, but also call Jimmy's entire presidency into question. So in an attempt to set the record straight, on August 4, 1980, the administration issued a press release. President Carter himself expressed his concern that Billy had been paid by Libya, but insisted this didn't affect past, present, or future U.S. foreign policy. The Senate subcommittee's findings confirmed Carter's statement. After a week of aggressive bipartisan questioning of Billy in August, subcommittee chairman Birch Bayh noted, What Billy Carter did is totally irresponsible, but that doesn't make it illegal. The Senate's early doubts about actual wrongdoing gave Jimmy's campaign a bit of wind in its sails. It was direly needed. According to the New York Times, the campaign was already way behind. An article read, Staff aides who otherwise would have been busy with political work were forced to spend the critical two weeks before the Democratic National Convention sifting through files and preparing affidavits for the Senate investigating panel. And yet, miraculously, at the convention on August 14, 1980, Jimmy Carter won 64% of the votes to Ted Kennedy's 34%. Though he'd secured the nomination, it was clear the party's support wasn't to be taken for granted. The relief was brief. Jimmy had to recalibrate for the general election. And the competition looked fierce. He'd be squaring off against the increasingly popular Republican Ronald Reagan that November. Carter hoped the American people wouldn't take their thoughts about Billy with them to the polls. So, with a lingering cloud of uncertainty, Carter continued into the final leg of his re-election campaign. The official results on the Senate's Billygate inquiry followed in October 1980, just one month before the presidential election. It found that the investigation by the Justice Department was conducted fairly. President Carter did not use his influence to get Billy off the hook. While Billy's dealings with Libya were highly embarrassing, they didn't influence U.S. foreign policy. This was great news for the Carter re-election campaign. Finally, they had a positive bookend to champion in the press. 
But the American people didn't gobble up the reports that the president acted honorably. In fact, coverage of the investigation was met with crickets. One week before the general election in November 1980, the final debate between the two candidates was set. On October 28th, Jimmy Carter would take the stage in Cleveland, Ohio, with one last chance to convince the American public he could lead them for a second term. He was cautiously hopeful. Registered Democrats had slowly but steadily been regaining faith in the campaign over the last few weeks. That night could prove to be the Hail Mary pass. Instead, it was game over. One headline, blasted out by the Associated Press just hours before the debate, would eclipse the entire night. Editor claims Billy Carter got $50,000 more from Libyans. The article alleged that according to magazine editor Michael Ledeen, Billy Carter met with Palestine Liberation Organization leaders and received a $50,000 payment from Libya. It was a hastily drafted piece. Many argued it wasn't vetted and dismissed it as hogwash. But the effects were catastrophic. Many newspapers used the Associated Press as a credible source to republish through their own respective wires. The New York Times and Boston Globe ran headlines soon after proclaiming, magazine editor reveals sources on Billy Carter and more questions on Billy Carter. That morning, it had seemed like Jimmy Carter might be able to convince the American public to get out and vote for him. Moments later, the entire country had just been reminded that his brother was embroiled in a political fiasco. The dropping of the article that morning was no accident. It was an October surprise. Over the years, this term has been used to describe a press stunt in the fall before a general election that threatens to tip the scales in favor of one candidate. So with this elephant in the room, Jimmy Carter buttoned his suit jacket and took the stage in Cleveland opposite Ronald Reagan. As one could expect, the debate went poorly for the president. In the final moments, Reagan looked directly into the camera and asked the American public, are you better off than you were four years ago? It was a hook, line, and sinker remark criticizing everything Jimmy Carter failed to move forward in his first term. And to add just one more insult to injury, another update was released by the Justice Department just two days later. On October 30th, a report drafted by the head of the department's Office of Professional Responsibility was sent to Congress. It faulted President Carter for being uncooperative throughout the DOJ investigation. Again, the headline to follow was short and it bit hard. Carter called uncooperative on brother. A week later, on election night, November 4, 1980, Jimmy Carter suffered a stunning defeat. He won but 49 electoral college votes to Ronald Reagan's 489. The hostages were still in Iran that November, and it was no coincidence that they were freed by the Iranians just minutes after Ronald Reagan finished his inaugural address on January 20th, 1981. Most political analysts believe that no matter what he did, 
as long as Jimmy Carter was president, Iran would not free the hostages. Though he left office on rather unsavory terms, Jimmy Carter would go on to become one of the country's most active philanthropists. He founded the Carter Foundation and would volunteer actively with Georgia's Habitat for Humanity. The years after the 1980 election didn't hold the same promise for the younger Carter brother. By 1981, Billy was once again suffering from financial troubles. To settle his outstanding debts, he sold off various properties, including his famous gas station. Billy even left Georgia, his lifelong home. He relocated to Alabama, where he eventually took a job as vice president of Scott Housing Systems, Inc. At first, it seemed like a fresh start, a new home and job to wipe the slate clean. However, Billy was soon under investigation again. He'd figured out that by padding customers' invoices with bogus fees, he could skim a little extra cash off the top. As a part of his guilty plea, he was required to pay restitution to those affected. Although he admitted his personal wrongdoing, Billy maintained that the practice was commonplace. He'd just been the one to get caught. Despite all the hardships that followed Billy Gate, there was one surprising upside. Billy Beer had a brief resurgence in popularity in 1981 after Jimmy Carter left office. Rumors began going around that the now discontinued Billy Beer was worth some serious cash, and anyone who still had their unopened gag gift lying around from years earlier could try and offload their stash for hundreds or even thousands of dollars. Reports poured in from people across the country who were able to sell a 12-pack for $200, $500, even $1,800. This fad was as short-lived as the first one, though. Soon after, Billy Beer and Billy himself dropped off the media's radar into relative obscurity. Even though Billy likely tipped the scales of Jimmy's election loss, the two didn't have the falling out that many anticipated. It's reported that the brothers were close up until Billy's death in 1988. For the Carters, it was best to forgive and forget. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 36, the shady campaign dealings of husband and wife duo Carol and Carol Hubbard. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Colleen Ekval, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>